So when I was about six years old, uh, my family and I went to a basketball game, probably a high school basketball game. We were out in the, in the concourse where the concession stands are, and I got separated from my folks. And I don't know if that's ever happened to you when you were a child, but I can distinctly remember, I mean like it was yesterday, I remember the sheer terror of that separation. That in that moment, as a little kid, it felt like there were a million people all around. And it felt like all of them were ten feet tall. And there was so much noise in the crowd that I couldn't cry out and I couldn't hear my parents cry out my name either. And there was absolutely nothing I could do about it. Well, even, and even though, you know, of course I found my parents, it was, pro- it was maybe 45 seconds of separation, maybe a minute. It felt like an eternity. Do you know that feeling? It felt like the, the entire world was all of a sudden against me and I was entirely alone. Um, now, I know that, parent, that, that uh, feeling now as a parent too, not just as a child. And maybe you know that as a parent, or at least that fear, that fear of losing sight of, losing your children. We had it happen to us uh, not that long ago at a Cracker Barrel. And it was 20 seconds, I mean 20 seconds, but our son was in tears. We were about to be in tears. I mean, it was, it was just the thought, it's just the thought of losing our kids. You know, as scary as that can be, here's the truth, it's not intentional. And when I think back to that time when I was a little kid, six years old, separated from my parents, that wasn't intentional. They weren't running in the other direction trying to abandon me. And we would never do that to our kids. We wouldn't abandon our kids. Just the thought of that makes me sick to my stomach. It probably does for you too. And so how in the world are we supposed to make sense of what appears to happen on the cross, what we just read from Matthew 27, where Jesus screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Throughout history, people have really struggled with those words because they just don't seem to fit. I mean, when we think about God, at least our, our conception of God, we think that God is perfectly loving, loving all the time, right? Pure love. And if God loved anybody, it would have been his own son, Jesus, right? And on top of that, Jesus was a perfect man. Jesus had no sin. He couldn't have deserved what was happening to him on the cross. So why in the world does Jesus scream out such painful words? What could it have possibly meant when he asked that question? Well, y'all, we're going to talk about that today. And and strange as it may seem, the answer to the question, why have you forsaken me? The answer to that question actually brings us into the very center of the heart of God and shows us just how loving God truly is. That doesn't seem to be the case on the surface, but I hope we'll see that as we walk through this today. So we, we just looked in Matthew 27. I'm going to pull a little um, switcheroo on you here, and I want you to turn back to your left to Psalm 22, okay? I'll do it too. I'll do, I'll do it if you do it. Let's turn back to the left to Psalm 22. That's really where we're going to spend the, most, the, more, the majority of our time. That's the psalm that we prayed from a moment ago. And it'll become obvious here in a minute why we're turning there. Psalm 22, this is a psalm of David, King David. He writes it clearly from a place of great trial and great distress. It is not a happy, clappy psalm. It's a, what we call a lament psalm. But Jesus does something remarkable. We're about to see it. Jesus from the cross, what we read in Matthew 27, Jesus is going to take himself and he's going to make himself the center of this psalm. Something that you and I can't do, you can't take the Bible and 
make yourself the center of a scripture and make it somehow all about you. We can't do that. We're not allowed to do that. But Jesus is allowed. Jesus, as God, has the right to do things like this. And so Jesus, even though David is the one who wrote these words, Jesus is going to make clear to us that the true ultimate fulfillment of what we're about to read actually comes in him, in Christ. And so I want you to watch how this this psalm unfolds, Psalm 22, because it reverses one of the assumptions that we all make about how things are supposed to work. Psalm 22 doesn't work according to script. What most people assume, there's probably part of this in your heart and mind too, what most people assume is that good people get blessings, good people get good things, bad people get bad things, bad people get punishments, right? That's how things are supposed to go. That's how justice is supposed to work. And that's how religion is supposed to work. That's how God is supposed to work. That's the default belief of our, of our human hearts. And yet here in Psalm 22, things to, seem to be totally out of whack. There's a reversal here. You'll see it. Verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. So right off the bat, you see it? God is being characterized as someone who is not listening, who is not answering, not delivering his servant. And in fact, David goes as far as to say, you have forsaken me. It's not that God is, some, is, is just somewhat distant. David says, you've turned your face away from me. So we're getting right up front a picture of God that doesn't compute with most of what we think, right? It seems out of place. And the next little section confirms that. Here's what God is supposed to do in David's estimation. Look at verse 3. He says, Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out, and they were delivered. In you they trusted, and were not disappointed. So that, that right there is an affirmation of God's character throughout history. That our ancestors, David says, they trusted in you and you delivered them in their trials. You answered them, you listened, you drew near, and you showed up for them. See, that's how things are supposed to go. But now look at verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. That means they stick out their tongues. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let God rescue him, because God delights in him. You see, you see the sarcasm there in verse 8. Um, y'all, when David says, I am a worm and not a man, he's not confessing sin. David is not saying right there, I'm a worm, meaning I know I'm a sinner and I'm probably just getting what I deserve. That's not the tone and tenor of this psalm. Um, if David were being punished for his sin, we might just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, well, I hate that he's going through this, but, you know, he kind of got himself into this mess. So, you know, I, you know, he can't really be too upset. But no, y'all, the point here, what David is saying is not because he's a sinner, but he simply found himself in a position where he says, I have become an object of disgrace. I'm being mocked, I'm being scorned, I'm the scum of the earth in everyone's eyes. And rather than God showing his power to deliver me, God is silent and he's turned his face away. He's forsaken me. 
Now, this is a troubling scripture. I hope you see it. We, we can't run away from this and pretend like it's somehow it's not difficult to interpret. My goodness, it, it violates how things are supposed to go. That if you are good, if you're obedient, if you love and trust God, God's supposed to be there for you. God's supposed to come through for you. He's supposed to bless us, supposed to show up for us. And that just doesn't seem to be the case here. So what's really going on? The truth is, David, right where he was, surely felt forsaken, but he wasn't really. He wasn't actually. I mentioned a minute ago, this is what's called a lament psalm. There are plenty of psalms just like this in the Bible, whether David or some other author wrote them, where there's a lament. They're lamenting their circumstances and the feeling that God is far away, that God perhaps is punishing or God has just become distant and silent. But the truth is, what we see as we follow through those scriptures is that God never actually forsakes them. That may be the feeling in that moment, and they write that. And of course, the Bible's a real book. The Bible honors those feelings. We don't whitewash things and pretend them away, no. But God never actually forsook David. In fact, I'm not aware of any place in the Bible where God actually forsakes a righteous person, regardless of how they feel, but where, where God actually does it, I'm, I'm not sure if I, if I know of a place in the Bible where a righteous person is truly forsaken, except one, except one. See, when Jesus quotes verse 1 of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was not on the cross dying, thinking to himself, I need to quote a scripture. Which one shall I quote? And he goes through his Rolodex. No, what Jesus is saying in that moment is, I am fulfilling these words. These words are really ultimately about me. This is Jesus's story that Psalm 22 now becomes from the cross. And we see that. Listen, the agony of this scripture, it plays itself out on the cross. Look down at verse 7 again, what we, what we read a minute ago. It says, All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their heads, saying, If, if God loves him and if he's so great, then, then let God deliver him. Why won't God come through for him? Y'all, that's exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. I mean, exactly, word for word, almost. Jesus, Jesus who had committed no sin, Jesus who was guilty of no crime, was treated as the vilest offender on the cross. He was crucified between two criminals and treated as just a common vagrant. He was treated as nothing. He was spit on, he was despised, he was punched, he was mocked. And Matthew tells us, just prior to what we read at the beginning of this message, Matthew tells us, that the bystanders looked at him and they wagged their heads. An ultimate sign of disrespect, of disregard, of shaming him. They laughed at his suffering. Exactly what we see in the words of David. Now, was there ever a greater injustice than this? I mean, think about this. What, what, what David felt in his... In his he, he wasn't being punished for his sin, but he felt like he was being maligned by, at every turn... That seems to be unjust, but David was not a perfect man. David never claimed to be a perfect man. But what we have in Jesus Christ, if anybody in history deserved good treatment, good things, it was Jesus because he was altogether good. There was no sin in him. If anybody in history deserved rescue, deserved to be delivered from trial and from suffering, it's right here. It's Jesus Christ. But instead of things getting better for him on the cross, they only got worse. Look down at verse 14 now. 
Psalm 22, verse 14. And you just see right here how this becomes Jesus's psalm. It says, verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you, God, you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You see what's happening right here? This psalm is scripting out the cross. It's scripting out the death of Jesus. Jesus was stripped naked, and his clothing gambled away. Jesus had his hands and his feet pierced through with nails, and he was hung on a cross, surrounded by mocking enemies. Nobody there to rescue him. Nobody brave enough or strong enough to deliver him in that moment. And even worse than that, not even his own heavenly father spared him from this. No one to rescue, no one to deliver. The psalm says, you, God, lay me in the dust of death. And that's what happened on the cross to Jesus. Now, when we think about this, it makes sense that Jesus would ask such a painful question, such a despairing kind of question in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It surely makes sense in the midst of all the pain that he was going through that Jesus would have wondered the answer to such a question. But I said this a minute ago, and I mean it. That question, no matter how painful it, it appears to us, that question actually brings us to the center of the heart of God. That question shows us the true heart and nature of God and his love. How? Well, let's, let's walk back through that, just that one verse. I told you we'd get back to verse 1 and see really what Jesus is saying when he cries out the first verse of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, I've heard another pastor make this point, and I'd never thought about it this way. But when Jesus is dying on the cross, he does not cry out, my hands, my feet, as if the physical pain was his primary issue up there. It wasn't. In fact, the the, the physical pain of what Jesus endured was nothing compared to the greater pain that we'll see in a minute. Nor did Jesus on the cross scream out, my friends, why have you deserted me? Although we have to know the psychological pain that Jesus, when he was arrested and put on trial, the scripture says every last one of his disciples abandoned him. They ran. The men that he had poured his entire life into for three years, those who promised that even if you go to death, we'll gladly die with you. And yet when push comes to shove, they run. But Jesus doesn't cry out lamenting where his friends are. You see what he says? My God... My God, this is spiritual pain. This is spiritual. The spiritual pain was far greater than the physical pain, than the psychological pain. That's the the, the pain that comes out in this question. My God, why have you forsaken me? That was the issue that Jesus dealt with most personally, most deeply on the cross. And so what is the answer to that question? Well, let me say up front, when, when, when Jesus says why, we need to be really clear 
that Jesus was not wondering truly why he was on the cross, as if he didn't know. When we read through the Gospels, we see it time and again, over and again, Jesus prophesied, he predicted, I'm going to go and be uh, and suffer and be crucified and raise again on the third day. Jesus made it so clear, abundantly clear to his disciples that what was coming for him was not going to be good, that there would be darkness, there would be death, there would be suffering, but then there would be resurrection. He predicted what was going to happen. He knew it was going to happen. And Jesus understood the purpose of that because he made the claim that his blood was going to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus knew what was going to happen. And so when when Jesus says why from the cross, it's not a, a question of curiosity, as if he didn't know why this was happening. No, it's simply a statement. It's really more of a statement than a question. It's a statement of agony. Because that question, why, is meant to picture for us the infinite pain, the infinite cost of our salvation. See, y'all, when, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, something happened to him that had never happened before. Um, never before had anything come between Jesus and the Father. Never before had anything come between the Son, Jesus Christ, and his heavenly Father. In fact, Jesus said that everything I do, I do because I see the Father in heaven doing it. I only do what I see my Father doing because the Father and I are one. There was perfect communion between Jesus and the Father all throughout his earthly ministry. But at the cross, something happens. Jesus is forsaken. Not in the same sense that David felt forsaken, but not really. No, Jesus really was. Jesus was truly forsaken. In the moment of Christ's greatest need, in the, in the moment of his very deepest pain, the Scripture shows us that God, the Father, turns his face away. Something comes between them. Now, what could it have been? What could have possibly come between the Father and the Son in that moment? Um, The Apostle Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, that the Father made the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Jesus, who knew no sin, he never committed a sin, and yet he became sin for us. Peter says it like this, that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Those two scriptures tell a... a, massive story, a huge and and really difficult to understand kind of truth, that at the cross, Jesus, though he was sinless, he in a sense became sinful because he took our sin upon himself. Now, if we understand the righteousness of God, righteousness means perfection, truly whole and complete in every way, the righteousness of God then we understand that God, if he's truly righteous, God cannot tolerate sin. God can't just sweep evil under the rug and pretend like it never happened. God can't do that and maintain an integrity of his character because God, no, God is righteous, God is holy, and God is just. And if those things are true about him, then that means sin has to be punished. It has to be. Otherwise, he's unjust. Sin and evil and darkness and death have to be dealt with. God and his justice and his holiness has to do it. Now, that's bad news when we flesh out the implications, because if I know the truth about me, that I'm a sinner, if you know that you're a sinner, 
and God in his righteousness has to deal with sin, then that means bad news for us. How is God going to destroy sin without destroying me, without destroying you? And the answer to that question comes to us at the cross. See, if, if only God could somehow give our sin to another, if only a perfect man could somehow stand in the place of imperfect men and women, if only there was somebody out there powerful enough to bear the eternal weight of judgment against all sin and darkness and evil, if only such a person could come along. And y'all, that's exactly what's happened on the cross. That's the wonderful good news of the gospel of Jesus, that because our sin was given to Christ, because it was, the fancy word is, it was imputed, it was taken from me, from you, and given to him as if he had committed it, because he was therefore forsaken over it, you and I are forgiven and redeemed. Jesus was in that sense cast out that we might be brought in in his place. And y'all, even as I say that, I, I have such a difficult time comprehending what I'm talking about. I've been a Christian now for 20 years. I don't, if God should give me 60 more years, I'm honest, I don't think I'll ever get down to the bottom and think I've figured this out. This is probably the deepest, greatest, most wonderful truth there is. But just try, right, I mean, where you are, whether you feel like you really grasp this or not, I don't know. Just try to imagine, if you can, our Savior in that moment, hands and feet nailed to the cross, that pain was nothing to him compared to the greater pain he's talking about when he quotes verse 1. That, that Jesus in that moment is taking on to himself the full righteous judgment for a world of sinners. Not just your sin, not just my sin, every sin that he's bearing the penalty, the eternal penalty of what we deserve. Uh, Tim Keller is a pastor who says it like this. I really appreciate the way he frames it. That Jesus Christ took hell into his heart on the cross. Jesus on the cross took my hell, the eternal weight of all my sin. He took it upon himself that it might be done away with. Y'all, when, when we think about the cross, we probably tend to think about the tangible realities, the crown of thorns pressed into his skull, the, the nails driven through his hands and his feet. Uh, when we were walking into church, my six-year-old was asking me about the nails in his hands. He said, did that hurt? Because when I push my thumb into it, it doesn't hurt. And I said, buddy, it hurt. We, we, we just can't, I can't, you and I can't even fathom the physical pain of what Jesus endured on the cross. And yet it was nothing. It was a drop in the bucket compared to what actually happens to him. The true agony comes in the forsaking that he experienced. For the Father, for God to take a world of sin and death and darkness and corruption and to put it on his Son, to make Jesus guilty of it as if he had committed it all. You understand that when Jesus died on the cross... He was playing the part right then and there of every murderer, every abuser, every liar, every thief, all of it. It became his reality in that moment. Do you see why God would turn his face away from the utter blinding light 
of a world of sin, it must be dealt with. Uh, When Jesus was baptized early on in his ministry, he came up out of the water and a voice rang out from heaven. This is my beloved son, God says, in whom I am well pleased. At the end of his life on the cross, Jesus screams out a question and receives no answer. Heaven is silent. Heaven is silent. He was forsaken. Y'all, this is a pain that we cannot possibly approach. I'll never even begin to fathom it. But this is the cost of our salvation. This is what had to be done for us to be made new. Y'all, I, you know, this, there's, a, there's an obvious question that comes out of this that a lot of people have asked, and maybe you've wondered this too. Was this really necessary? I mean, my goodness, this, the violence, the blood, the screaming, the agony, the forsaking. If God wanted to forgive people, did it really require all of this? Was this necessary? And we call this loving. We say this is an, an expression of God's love. My goodness, there have been many, many people throughout history who have looked at this story and they've looked at the words of Jesus in quotation of this psalm and they say, this is not loving. This is, this is divine child abuse. This is God not at his best. This is God at his worst. People can't be, this, this is an offense. How is this supposed to communicate love? Um, I, I think that, I think it helps us to understand that when most people think about God and they think about love, and y'all, this is, this is true for a lot of us. It's probably somewhere in your heart. It's somewhere in mine. That, that most people, what we really want in life, we want a generic God of love to be somewhere out there to take care of me. And for most people, that's really all I want. I, I want to believe that God is out there and that he loves me. And that things will go well for me, you know, if I acknowledge him and pray to him occasionally. And I just, some sort of kind of just very generic God who loves me, right? Most, most people actually believe that and, are, and, you know, that's enough for them. But y'all, here's the question. And we've all got to wrestle with this. If that's the kind of God I like to believe in, then the question has to be, okay, well, what does it cost that God to love me? What does it cost God to love you? And a person might say, well, that's a silly question. It doesn't cost God anything to love me. He just loves me. But that's not how love works, and we all know it. See, here's the truth. If you've ever truly loved somebody, you know how costly it is, don't you? That it costs not just time and energy and money, of course, but when that person wrongs you, when that person sins against you, and everyone inevitably does, no matter how deeply you love each other, when that person's hurts you at the deepest level, there's a cost that comes with restoring that relationship, with offering grace and forgiveness, with reconciling and bringing that person in close again and trusting them again. That's costly. That's not mere emotion. That's not generic love. That costs us because that's what true love is. And y'all, we're merely human. We're merely human. Think about this for a second. Think about what it would cost God, to love an entire world of people who constantly sin against him. What it would cost God to love people who continually doubt or even deny his existence. What it costs God to love people who have, from the, from the very beginning, have corrupted his good creation and taken him for granted. Martin Luther said, if the world had treated me 
the way it has treated God, I would have kicked the vile, wretched thing to pieces. And so would you, and so would I. Don't, don't, I don't even think that I'm more noble than that. I would have given up a long time ago. What does it cost God to love us? See, if, if there's a generic God who loves us and it's, there's no cost to it, it means that he's really, if he even exists, he's out there somewhere far off and he loves us only in some aloof kind of way. It's not real love because it doesn't cost anything. But for God to love you in a real way, a meaningful way, a way that actually changes things, for God to love you in a way that grants you eternal life and changes how you live in the present, that kind of love does not come without cost. And so when we look at the cross, awful as it was, awful as it was, we also, I hope, see we see the absolute beauty of what was done, the most beautiful thing that's ever been done, that Jesus, in the greatest act of divine love we've ever known, Jesus took everything that's wrong with us, all of your sin, all of the evil and darkness and corruption and death that exists within us, Jesus took it and he laid it upon himself as our substitute. He voluntarily was forsaken so that we would not be. He signed up for this. He volunteered to be the one forsaken so that you wouldn't be. Jesus experienced the deepest pains of hell so that you might experience the deepest and greatest glories of heaven. This is why when the Bible speaks about God's love, the Bible does not use generic terms. The Bible does not paint a picture of God up in heaven and we're like his pets and he attends to our needs and he loves us very generically. No, when, when the Bible speaks of God's love, it's always in an active kind of way. Romans 5 says, God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He acted on his love. 1 John 4 says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you see what God's love does? It demonstrates itself. It's real. It's tangible. There's skin in the game because God loves you. So if the question ever enters your mind, how do I really know God loves me? A generic God of love, you'll never know. You hope, you hope, but you'll never know. How do I know he loves me? Certainly when difficult times come, I'm prone to doubt it, to think he's forsaken me because generic love won't get me very far. How do you know God loves you? Well, how much did his love cost? Infinite cost because of infinite love. I want to close by showing you guys how Psalm 22 ends. It's a lament psalm, but Psalm 22 actually ends with a note of triumph as it should, because the cross of Christ, awful as it was, miserable as it was, the forsaking, the turning away of God, so that our sins might be punished and dealt with once and for all, as awful as that was, the cross is not the final word, the resurrection is the final word. And we'll talk about that a whole lot next Sunday. The psalm ends on a note of triumph. Listen to, the, the, there's a place beyond the sufferings of Christ, and listen to what this says. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation 
They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. There will be forevermore a proclamation, a declaration throughout all the world, throughout all of heaven, of the righteousness of Jesus, that he has done it, that he has performed his righteousness on our behalf. You see, at the cross, the final words of Jesus as he lay dying were not, why have you forsaken me? The final cry of Jesus was, it is finished. Jesus was not eternally forsaken. He was not truly abandoned and left somehow for good. No, that forsakenness lasted for a time, but it ended. And when payment for sin had been accomplished, Jesus said, it's done. I've done it. And forevermore, the the declaration of those who worship in in heaven will say, you've done it. It's finished. Jesus' last words were, I've paid the price. It's been done. Y'all, by faith, we're brought into that promise. By faith in Jesus, when we trust in Jesus, we never one day from now to eternity's end, which it has no end, we never, ever, ever, ever will know what it's like to be forsaken. We may feel it in the moment, but we'll never actually know the reality because in Christ we cannot know what it is to be separated again from Christ, from God. He's, been, he's brought us near because we trust in the one who has chosen to take our place. Y'all, Palm Sunday, this wonderful holy week that we're entering into, um, we're, we're, I, I hope that this week we'll take serious inventory of the realities of the cost of our salvation. And that is a, that is a dark reality. This is a dark reality that we enter into. Um, and yet it was the joy set before him that allowed Jesus to endure that cross. And the joy set before him was the triumph of saying it is finished and bringing all of those sinners like you and me, bringing us in never to be forsaken again. So the darkness of the cross was very real, very painful, beyond our imagination. But the joy set before him, that's the joy in which we now sit. And here in a moment as we sing, it'll be the joy in which we stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in, the, in your infinite wisdom, thank you that you would see fit to do it just like you did. And none of us would have done it this way. None of us would have, made, would have written out this script. It just, it's so far beyond how we think things are supposed to work. How, how could the best of all people, the perfect man, how could he experience the worst of all circumstances? The worst of all suffering. How could he be forsaken? And yet, Lord, you did it for our sake. That you made your son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I pray, Lord, you'd give us a deep, um, a deep joy. A deep contentment, a deep satisfaction, a deep delight in knowing that 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 outrageous suffering um, is the greatest expression of love that we'll ever know. The greatest expression of love we can ever know. Thank you, Lord, that when you looked out at a world of sinners, when you looked at me in all my sin, you said, I'll take Kyle's sin and I'll put it on Christ. 
and I'll make him righteous in, in his place. I, I, I'll never deserve it. Thank you, Lord, that you have done that for us by faith. Father, I, I, I pray this morning that um, if there are any of us right now that we, we don't fully trust in that truth, we don't fully trust that maybe that we have a need for that kind of salvation, Lord, would you reveal to us that, that, um, that we, are, we are desperately needy indeed, that we, have, we cannot climb a ladder to you and earn our way in. We've got to receive this grace as a gift. Um, if this seems too big for our comprehension, we just can't understand, um, then Lord, be gracious to us and help us little by little to take deeper hold of this truth, that it might change how we think about you, it might change how we live to know that we've been loved this deeply. I need that. But Father, thank you that that in the end, Lord, we are not left to ourselves. But your son came, he lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death we deserve to die. And he did it out of love. So we praise you for that. And I pray, Lord, we take that truth so deeply into our hearts that nothing would ever be the same, ever. And we thank you in Jesus' matchless, mighty, precious name. Amen. Amen.